Yeah, cool. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about acute coronary syndromes in general. You guys, you guys, good back there. So this is Advanced Patient Care Theory One, Unit Four, Part Seven, ACS. You guys are good. Okay, let's go through this quickly. So, so ACS is a is a, an umbrella term essentially uh, that describes cardiac ischemia, lack of blood flow and oxygen to the myocardium. So it includes things like angina and stable angina. Uh, Non-ST elevation myocardial infarction or non-STEMI. Uh, I guess you could you could put um, OMI in that occlusive myocardial infarction in that, uh, and then ST segment elevation. Also includes things like um, Prince Metal's well Prince Metal's angina. She has a different mechanism, but I'll talk about Prince Metal's angina anyway. So the commonality is the pathophysiology. Uh, so. Um, and a similar sequence of pathological events in those. So there's an atherosclerotic buildup, and in, in, in angina, it's always a supply and demand issue. So if the uh, demand exceeds the supply, as in exertion, for example, then um, there may be ischemia and chest discomfort. What's going on? Right. Just in case you didn't know, two times zero is zero. Yeah, so that's a pretty intense math class going on next door. <laughs> Ouch. Just start yelling. Start yelling. <laughs> 10 times 0 is 0. <laughs> also known as the square root of squat. So, all right, let's carry on. So when, when, blood, when blood flow is inadequate to meet the heart's metabolic demands, uh, people develop symptoms, right? Signs and symptoms. Uh, so acute MI, uh, most common etiology for acute MI is, is when one of those plaques rupture. And when a plaque ruptures, the body uh, sees it just like it would see any other wound. And so platelets rush in, uh, there's vasoconstriction that occurs, and um, a clot starts to form, and uh, it includes the coronary artery. You've, has anyone not seen uh, a clot that's been aspirated from a, from a STEMI patient? So but it's yeah, it's the size of mouse poop. Basically, it's really tiny. Eh? It's really minuscule. So it's 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 funny because when you see that, having a heart attack doesn't seem as big a deal as you know having not seen it. So what's that? No, I they didn't aspirate mine. So or if they did, they didn't show me. Anyway. But uh, my interventionist was really good. He, he gave me a play-by-play, -play, the whole thing. I asked him if he would, you know, walk me through it. This was, uh, this is a total digression here, but I thought this was kind of funny and the importance of uh, maybe not using medical terminology when you're talking to people. So I'll just let you read that. <laughs> you know, that would make a great family story. I can actually picture going to dinner somewhere and you know someone saying yeah Uncle Fred died from a massive internal fart and I'd be, <laughs> I'd be looking at them thinking no that doesn't sound right. I don't know. <laughs> What's that? Yeah maybe <laughs> yeah ruptured viscous or something. <laughs> maybe from a you know, fecal impaction or something. Yeah, but you never know, right? That's the beauty about this job is 
you could do this 50, 60 years, and you'll never see everything. Like, you know, if someone ever says to you, you must have seen everything. It's like, no, not even close. You know, <laughs> never, ever. Uh, so angina. So angina, uh, you can have angina in any body part. If you've got an ischemic leg, you've got angina, right? But angina pectoris was, you know, we think angina, we usually think chest pain. So, um, so that we've already talked about, ischemia. And uh, uh, it's a supply-demand issue. So stable angina would be uh, angina that's precipitated by physical exertion or emotional stress. Uh, pain typically lasts one to five minutes, occasionally as long as 15 minutes, relieved with rest and nitro. Unstable, on the other hand, is you know people who start to experience angina rest. So when we're gathering a history about their angina, we want to find out does this what what brings on the chest pain typically? Do you have it at rest or do you have it during exertion? So I mean, the minute, minute I see nitroglycerin in the patient's meds, I start asking about their angina. Oh, when's the last time they had chest pain? What were they doing at the time? What are they? What usually brings on the chest pain? Um, uh, pain usually lasts 10 minutes or more, relieved with nitro, with or without O2, um, but uh, not relieved as readily as stable angina. So MIs, um, when someone occludes a vessel or has a near occlusion of a vessel, and oftentimes it's a, you know, it can be a 98% occlusion or 97% occlusion, generally if it's over 75%, they'll do, uh, they'll do angioplasty, I learned. and. Um, but if they've got, you know, 95%, they've still got some blood flow, and um, um, you're going to get death of cells that happen sort of sporadically. So you're going to get cells that are ischemic, cells that are injured, and injury is loosely defined as uh, ischemic to the point where they, um, they're unable to maintain um, uh, a stable cardiac membrane and... Um, Fluid starts to leak into the cells. The cells become edematous, and we see that in the form of ST elevation. <coughs> um, so there's injury patterns, what you and I typically see in patients who are having a STEMI. And uh, they may or may not have uh, symmetrically inverted T waves, which can, can be indicative of um, ischemia, but there are other causes of inverted T waves. I've seen patients with angina where I've given them nitro and their inverted T waves flipped, became positive again. That sometimes happens. And then as the myocardial uh, infarction goes on, and this can be, this can range anywhere from an hour to 12 hours, you start to see pathological Q waves. And uh, the reason the, the range is so high, like an hour to 12 hours, it really depends on whether it's 100% occlusion or 85% uh, occlusion or 92% occlusion, you know, d depends on, you know, if there's how much blood flow there is still happening from that vessel and how much collateral circulation they may have. So, but to be a pathological Q wave, Q wave's gotta be a millimeter wide and the depth of the Q wave's gotta be at least 25% the height of the R wave. So if a patient's got uh, pathological Q waves in two or more anatomically contiguous leads, that's indicative of an old infarction, right? Do you know which type of old infarction we see most commonly? Inferiors, yeah, we see inferiors. So pathological QAs and 2-3 AVF or, or two of those leads. And it's very, very common for patients to have pathological QAs in their inferior leads and have no idea that they've had a heart attack in the past. Extraordinarily common. In fact, almost every inferior wall MI I've ever seen, like, like old MI, the patient had no idea they'd had a heart attack before. Um, and usually that's because it presents like uh, upset stomach and they just feel weak, 
uh, kind of not themselves for a week, even flu-like symptoms. And uh, a week or so goes by and they start to feel better. And then, you know, you get a call for them two years later and you do a cardiogram for whatever reason. You see this old infarction, very common. So, um, so infarction means necrosis. And um, uh, acute means they typically have like injury pattern and evolving means we're starting to show some pathological Q waves. So determining the age of that infarction is very difficult. And, and in the ECG analysis, it'll often say um, STEMI or infarction age undetermined or indeterminate. Um, and um, so even if we see ST elevation with pathological Q waves, that patient's still a, a PCI candidate. So old will have permanent pathological Q waves. ST segments come down, inverted T waves flip up, uh, but Q waves stay forever. So, Prince Mendel's angina, anyone had a Prince Mendel's angina or vasospastic angina patient? I had a 23-year-old with uh, irritable bowel syndrome and he was having chest pain and it was intermittent chest pain and it was like classic crushing, intense, heavy, uh, broke out in a sweat when it happened and it would last five, 10 minutes and it would go away. I wasn't quite sure what to do and I was 23 years old, right? So but I gave him ASA, I gave him nitro and then it would go away and then it would come back again and I give him some more nitro. And um, he was on, a, uh, this was many, many years ago, he had a bag full of meds he was taking for his irritable bowel syndrome. And uh, the ER doc said, it's gotta be these drugs here, because he was on like three or four of them that, that contained ephedrine or some other sympathomimetic. And he said, it's gotta be <coughs> like all of these that are giving him vasospastic angina. And it was very cool, because they put him on a Hewlett Packard um, ECG monitor. And so you could see the, the ECG, much like you would in the Zola or the Life Pack. And when he had chest pain, his ST segments went way above the baseline. And then when the chest pain subsided, the ST segments came back down again. <laughs> so he's not a STEMI, right? He's not occlusive, uh, but he's vasospastic. And uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Going somewhere around the highway, it was really cold that night, so mild hypothermia as well by the time we got into the ambulance. Yeah. We did fall beyond STEMI showing. Yeah. Um, at the real time. Well, the second time I passed during direction was not to take them. But yeah. they seemed to be in agreement that it was not, uh, not a STEMI. STEMI. What was his heart rate at that time? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, I can't remember. I want to say it was He was tachycardic a little bit, yeah. Yeah, you know what, you gotta, you gotta watch out for cocaine users, and Halton seems to have a high number of them for some reason. Um, big money, yeah. So, uh, uh, because uh, a recreational cocaine user, let's say a weekend only, weekend only cocaine user, four or five years, they'll have the heart disease of a 75 year old. Like they, they have heart disease that progresses very, very rapidly. And you'll see STEMIs in patients in their 20s with uh, cocaine use. There's a lot of studies that show it like, cuts off blood circulation to the brain, too, and they deteriorate really quickly. Neurologically, yeah. Yeah, yeah I've heard that, too. Yeah. He was also stabbed. Like, he was also stabbed. In the heart. That's so like, there was he was stabbed in the heart. He was stabbed in the heart. This I is like a friggin' scenario from Janine. Yeah. <laughs> I, saw, I, saw, like, I saw this car. I'm like, what's yeah. this car? I said, I was stabbed in the heart. So yeah. I, I mentioned you. 
the oh, okay. scar and the hospitalization. So I don't know if you know if this was a so permanent, permanent ECG change because of that was an old injury. Yeah, yeah. Injury, but, um, probably not. But you know what? You know what'll give you um, uh, permanent ST elevation is a ventricular aneurysm. So um, sometimes when someone's had an old uh, an old infarct and they get scar tissue, when uh, when the ventricle contracts, a part of the ventricle bulges out. That's a ventricular aneurysm. It's just old thin scar tissue, and they have uh, persistent ST elevation. But um, no, I, I, I'd be surprised if the stab wound caused ST elevation. It doesn't sound. It's just a, it makes more sense that it'd be the cocaine yeah. and advanced coronary artery disease than that guy. And you know, the minute this heart rate comes down, the ST segments probably come down. So whenever you got a tachycardic patient with ST segment elevation, you want to manage the tachycardia. So that's why you're probably going to end up going to the local hospital first. Living fast, eh? Living fast, yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, you know where I see a lot of cocaine use? Entertainers, particularly comedians. Um, or they try to get hyped up for the show, right? Like you got to be hyped. It'd be hard to uh, hard to be funny. Hard to be funny if you're feeling down. So, so, what's that? I I erase those old podcasts so that. You know, I'm not sure if that's a breach of privacy or not. Uh, well, so you didn't tell me. Someone who was there said that you were also there. And that's who they heard it from, not you. <laughs> if, if Twitter existed at that time, it would have been all over the place. <laughs> anyway, so. Um, so, Prince Minilangitis, <laughs> you'll, you'll typically get, with vasospastic angina, you'll get ST segment elevation. So, but it'll be temporary. It'll come and go. I actually had a guy, uh, speaking of, we were talking about false positives with needle thoracostomies earlier. Um, I had, I've had two false positive STEMIs, unfortunately, you don't, you don't want to go to a, a PCI center with a false STEMI, that's always a little embarrassing, but we had a guy who had a uh, pulmonary embolus, and he presented with ST segment elevation. So he presented like a STEMI, we took him there, and the, the interventionist said, well, you know, his vessels are clear, but it's a good thing you brought him here anyway, and they gave him uh, streptokinase right through the, like a low-dose streptokinase for his pulmonary embolism. Um, uh, not in the PCI lab, but they ended up, that's what they ended up doing. They did a lung scan or VQ scan or something, I'm not sure what, but. Um, so, um, uh, you can get uh, ST elevation or ST depression with tachyarrhythmias too. Um, so, think about it, it's all supply and demand, right? If you've got a tachyarrhythmia in an older patient with cardiac disease, and um, typically you'll see ST depression. ST depression is in a tachycardia, it's usually suggestive of subendocardial ischemia. So the, the coronary vessels travel on the epicardial surface, and they get smaller and smaller and smaller until they reach the endocardium. And when you put people on the treadmill for cardiac stress tests, one of the things they look for is, is signs of subendocardial ischemia. So they're on the treadmill, they're walking away, and they go up in elevation, and when you start to see the ST segment sag below the baseline, you, you, you go, okay, well this guy's got subendocardial ischemia, they stop the test, maybe they'll do an angiogram to get it more detail. But some, some patients with disease, uh, 
uh, they'll go beyond uh, subendocardial ischemia. They'll, they'll get transmural ischemia and transmural injury and SD actually present with SD elevation with their tachycardia. And so if you see a patient who's got a heart rate of 140 or 150 and they've got ST segment elevation, it's probably not a STEMI and you need to get the tachyarrhythmia under control. So either it's an SVT that needs to be converted um, or it needs to be managed in hospital. And once you get the tachycardia under control, if, if there's the ST segment usually disappears, but if it's still there, once the tachycardia is under control, at that point they get transferred to a PCI center. So we had a guy, for example, <coughs> he was, uh, I think he was 48, and he had a GI bleed, and my PCP partner was attending, and he had uh, you know, bright red blood in the toilet, and he was nice enough not to flush the toilet, so we took a look at the toilet, and it was like bright, bright red blood, like not the diluted pinky stuff. So it looked like he lost a fair bit of blood. And um, we, uh, we transported them, and in the back, my partner just, for no particular reason, decided to do a 12-lead ECG on him, um, because he was anxious, but didn't have any chest pain or shortness of breath, but did a 12-lead, and it came out STEMI positive. So we pulled the vehicle over, I hopped in the back, and I patched to uh, uh, the cardiac interventionalist, and the cardiac interventionalist said, yeah, no, just, I, uh, just he said, just take him to the local hospital, and if he still has SD segment after, you know, some boluses of fluid, maybe they'll ship him to, to us. But uh, he was just hypovolemic and uh, you know had advanced coronary artery disease so uh, once he got some fluid boluses on board he he didn't have ST segment elevation anymore so it's always supply and demand right so supply and demand can give you ischemia uh, if, if, if the supply is inadequate to meet the demands or it can give you injury pattern if it's that higher level of ischemia so um, not all ST segment elevation is, um, is STEMI um, so typical presentation, chest discomfort, vice-like um, squeezing. My first, actually, my first official STEMI was a 38-year-old guy who had sharp chest pain and he could point to it. It was right here and it was sharp. It was 7 out of 10 and he was a little diaphoretic and we did a cardiogram on him and he had an anterior wall MI. So he was a very atypical presentation. It was reproducible by palpation. It was pleuritic in nature. He, he could pinpoint it but he was an infarct, right? So pa patients don't read the textbooks. But typically center of the chest, across the chest, epigastric, substernal, retrosternal. We also know that um, uh, more women will be um, discharged from hospital when they're having an infarct. So we gotta be particularly careful with women who may present atypically. Uh, typically it's constant. Um, it may radiate to one of the arms, the neck and the jaw. Um, and then typical associated signs and symptoms or pertinent negatives would include, you know, pale, cool, diaphoretic, shortness of breath, nausea, vomiting, anxiety. So we look for those, and if if they if they're not there, we document those as as you know um, uh, pertinent negatives. Uh, so management, uh, you know, we want to make sure that rest and ECG, SpO2, O2, PRN, IV, 12 lead, uh, submilingual nitro. Um, we want to think about risk benefit. They do something interesting in Manitoba. They, they, uh, they can give a max of three nitro and then they put a nitro patch on, which not a bad idea, but nitro patch takes like a half an hour before it starts to work. So I thought that was odd. And the uh, last conversation I had with some uh, friends from Manitoba, I said, why not just 
three nitro, put a nitro patch, and then just give another, at least another three, you know, or four or something. Right. Yeah. If you see, um, like, flip uh, keys and, like, pathological cues in B4 R, are you withholding nitro in that case? Uh, only if I see ST elevation in Only if you see B4 ST elevation? R. So yeah. if there's other signs of potential ischemia or damage? Um, yeah, no. 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 But here's the thing, right? Um, if you got a patient and you're worried about uh, their hemodynamic status and you're worried about the possibility of right ventricular ischemia or infarction, just don't give the nitro, period. Like the nitro sublingual is not going to save anyone's life. Right. Might make them a little more comfortable. Um, but giving nitro where it's potentially dangerous is a risk, right? So I look at it that way. Any patient with an inferior wall MI, is at risk, even if they've got no ST changes. I'll talk about 12 leads later, but you know, the base hospital recommends RV4 plus V8, V9. I don't bother with V8 and V9. All I care about is a right ventricular infarct. And I can tell you, I've, and I'll show you an example where uh, there's no ST segment ele elevation in RV4, but it's crystal clear in RV5 and RV6. So RV4 to me is not 100% sensitive. You add those other two and you've got a little bit more sensitivity. Uh, so I'm, I'm inclined to do RV4, RV5, RV6. Um, posterior wall infarcts, I mean, usually you can tell they've got posterior wall involvement if you've got ST, ST depression in V1, V2, and uh, that's all I need, but we'll get to that later. RV5 and 6, same as the left side and the right? Yeah, yeah, exactly the same, yeah. Yep. Most of the time, though, we won't sell this out, though, just like vitally. Yeah, like a heart rate less than 60 yeah. or... Blood pressure that's low, yeah. Exactly, yeah. 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 Um, but anytime you got an inferior wall MI, no one would criticize you for withholding nitro. So uh, it's funny though, when I had my STEMI, um, nitro was the only thing that gave me a little bit of relief. Uh, morphine didn't, and uh, then I got fentanyl when I got my PCI, and I got 125 mics of fentanyl. It didn't help me at all. I didn't feel it. I just you told them. What's that? No, I told them to stop giving it to me. And Did that make you feel dewy or no, nothing. Oh, really? The morphine, I can't describe the morphine. It didn't give me any relief. It made me feel funny, but I can't even, I'm not even sure how, what I mean by funny. It just didn't feel right. I didn't feel neurologically fuzzy or anything. I just thought, I, yeah, this is not right. I don't like this. Um, and, um, but I wouldn't, uh, if I broke a femur or something, I, I would welcome the fentanyl for sure. Because <laughs> I think it's a different kind of thing, right? Like every kind of pain responds probably differently to narcotics. So, But I don't know, maybe IV uh, acetaminophen and some IV lidocaine and you know, some Ketorolac is all I need. <laughs> I don't know. I don't Someone know. Says, um, mentioned that we reduced our uh, nitro for our studies um, yeah. mainly because of the cardiac interventionist, one of the interventionists was trying to explain to me that basically they don't like the coronary artery dilation, like the excessive, because it actually hinders the treatment when they're trying to put the stents in. Mm. Interesting. Like, you know what I mean? Because when it's yeah. the stents, if the coronary arteries are dilated more than they would be, um, then they end up having like issues post treatment. That's, that's interesting. I've never heard that before, but that sounds really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Like, they ha like yeah. patients are having poor outcomes really? post-STEMI uh, with excessive nitro treatment because of the stents being put in place. Yeah. He was, he was way smarter, I don't know how to explain it, but 
basically there was issues yeah. with it being too dilated and it was causing issues with the treatment. Interesting. So three nitros and you're done. What about morphine? There was no issue with morphine. It was in for the coronary artery. Yeah. Okay. Um, so nitro um, and um, ASA for its antithrombotic effect, uh, morphine. Um, there may come a time when we're giving heparin in the field, who knows. But um, morphine, is it beneficial in angina? It's hard to say, but um, you get some venodilation, so reduce reduction in preload, reduction in workload in the heart, and it blunts the sympathetic response in a patient who's um, anxious, so that can be helpful. <coughs> and then uh, transport. So O2, uh, O2 we titrate, but, but if they're uh, norm, normoxic, we don't bother with, with O2, right? So um, when I had my STEMI, um, they offered me O2 by nasal prongs. I said, no, I'm good, you know, and um, nah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, the, the avoid trial was interesting. Uh, right, so hyperoxia uh, in that case, and that hyperoxia was eight liters via simple mask uh, versus no O2. That was a, uh, the, the just just of the study. So they found there was a reduction in coronary blood flow, uh, an increase in coronary vascular resistance, an increase in free oxygen radicals, and uh, a disturbed microcirculation. Maybe that's the issue: is microcirculation. Um, so. Uh, I won't go over the directive because you've been going at the directives uh, hard and fast in pharmacology and the labs. But um, any questions about? We're and we're going to come to twelve leads. We're going to do twelve leads uh, and STEMIs in a little while, but uh, we'll come to that next week. Any questions about ACS? Yeah. So it'd be. Uh, 18 lead can be whatever you want it to be, but it could be RV4, <laughs> RV5, RV6, plus V7, V8, V9. Yeah, you can do a whole bunch of different things. Yeah. Okay, let's call it a day.